Before we begin in earnest, I want you to do one thing for me this morning. Take your bulletin, take your bulletin, and grab a pen. There's some pens in these chair pockets here. And I want you to jot down the first name of someone in your life. All right, so on your bulletin, it could be anywhere, just jot down the name of some, someone in your life, the first person who passes through your mind or has just passed through your mind. You know, images of them may stir up the good, the bad, the ugly, doesn't matter. Just whoever comes to mind, just quickly jot down their name. And we're going to come back to this at the end. But first, now that you're intrigued, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this time together. I pray that your words would stand out, that you would highlight, amplify, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Wow. Speak to us, grow us, challenge us, change us. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Prayer Makes a Difference. And I recognize right away that this title is sort of defensive because it's an attempt to refute what we've all thought or at least what we've shown through our actions at one point or another. That is, that prayer doesn't seem to make much of a difference. Why should I be defensive about this? Because the spirit of our age opposes itself to prayer. Yes, there are people more open to prayer, even if they haven't stepped foot in a church, a synagogue, a place of worship. But on the other hand, there's a pervasive influence in our world that's opposed to prayer, namely cynicism. Cynicism is that constant doubting or mistrust of the face value of just about anything that's put before us. We see it, but we know there's something else to it. That can't be it. And we mistrust and we doubt. An opportunity in preparing for this uh, whole series to read a number of books on prayer, a number of really good books. And one of them was as Paul Miller wrote a book called A Praying Life. And He's got a wonderful chapter, actually a series of chapters in here, on cynicism, prayer's modern enemy. And I want to read just a few excerpts from that this morning, if we can, because I know there's nothing you like better than me reading from a book. (laughs) All right. He says this, cynicism begins with the wry assurance that everyone has an angle, right? Behind every silver lining is a cloud. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but rarely engaged and loving and hoping. He goes on to quote this modern blogger who says this, unlike our parents, we never believed in anything. Our defining characteristic is cynicism, but that's a double-edged sword. It protects you from crushing disappointment, but it paralyzes you from doing anything. Interesting. Cynicism begins, oddly enough, with too much of the wrong kind of faith with naive optimism or foolish confidence. At first glance, genuine faith and naive optimism appear identical because they both foster confidence and hope, but the similarities only surface deep. Genuine faith comes from knowing my Heavenly Father loves, enjoys, and cares for me. Naive optimism is groundless. And frankly, friends, there is no culture more optimistic than the culture, really, of our Western world it's groundless, usually. Let's read this also, finally. This is how it affects prayer. He says, it's the opposite of a childlike spirit. 
is a cynical spirit. Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Personally, it is my greatest struggle in prayer, says Miller. If I get an answer in prayer, sometimes I'll think it would have happened anyway. I can relate to that. I pray, something seems to be answered, and I even think to myself, well, that was such a safe prayer. Probably would have happened anyway. Cynicism is pervasive in our culture, in what we read, in what we watch, and what we listen to. Uh, I enjoy many different kinds of music, all right? There's some I don't like. We can talk about that later. But one of my favorite bands, secular bands, if you will, is the Dave Matthews Band. All right, hands down, the best performance at a concert I've ever seen was uh, for this group called the Dave Matthews Band. Anyone heard of the Dave Matthews Band out there? All, you, all the youths, all the kids? I'm a kid, too. All right, so I saw them uh, indoors in uh, Los Angeles, California. Since then, they have banned this particular band from playing indoors uh, as it's too difficult to see the band through all the smoke. Now, at first, I thought that smoke was pyrotechnics, you know, but then it started to smell a little funny. I thought, hmm, suspicious. All right, but, you know, don't be cynical. <laughs> all right. So one of their well-known songs is a song called uh, Gray Street. And it's sort of innocuous on the surface, a nice song, but it really reflects what Miller is trying to convey in his book about cynicism. So I want to read you some of the lyrics. I'm going to emphasize read, not sing some of these lyrics. So I will read them to you. Yeah, right. All right. (laughs) I will also not dance like Dave Matthews. That's another story. He says this, Oh, look at how she listens. This is kind of a song about a, a woman in despair. Look at how she listens, but she says nothing of what she thinks. She just goes stumbling through her memories, staring out onto Gray Street. And so we see here, first, the paralyzing effect of modern cynicism. You don't speak against it. There's nothing you can really do about it. You just stand at a distance. Lyrics continue. She thinks, hey, how did I come to this? I dreamed like anyone else last night that I'd be a beautiful princess. That's one version of the lyrics. Like any girl, she's grown up with that Disney dream. She's adopted, but without parental guidance, without someone to tell her and help her understand that the world will crush that kind of groundless dream, that it's just going to happen. But there is hope. Without anyone to tell her that, without anyone to communicate that, dreams get crushed. The world meets a groundless dream and crushes it. Naive optimism. Last set of lyrics I'll read to you. How she wishes it was different, she prays to God most every night. And though she swears he doesn't listen, or he doesn't listen, there's still a hope in her. It might, so there's a, this like vague hope that it, whatever it is, might, but then she ultimately ends up in despair. She says, I pray that they fall on deaf ears. Am I supposed to take it on myself to get out of this place? And so, despair about prayer. Cynicism pervades music we listen to, books we read, movies we watch, and conversations we have. The way out of cynicism toward prayer is through witnessing prayer make a real and measurable difference in someone's life. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You've got to see it. And you've got to see it in a tangible, measurable way, make a difference in someone's life. But who 
I can guarantee that someone is, may surprise you. Sermon in a nutshell this morning is genuine third-person prayer will always make a genuine first-person difference. When we pray for he's, she's, and they's, we hope against hope that God will produce some sort of change for them. But seeing the immediate, even gradual change in someone's life, see it in their heart, to see inside them, that's tricky, isn't it? To be judging that. But what we're guaranteed to find is we see in the life of one cynic turned Jesus follower, one cynic turned apostle, is that whether or not we are blessed to observe the wide-ranging effects and difference that prayer makes, the person of prayer will always be able to observe the difference made in him or in her. So if you would open your Bibles to Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 11. That's on page 840 if you want to use one of the Bibles we provided in the chair pockets for you. What we're going to see here in this passage is fascinating. Paul demonstrates a truth that each of you who have prayed even one prayer, even one genuine prayer for someone each of you have experienced. You prayed one genuine prayer. Namely, that prayer actually leads to love. And then that love leads back to prayer. Whether that person's a precious friend or companion, or they're a thorn in your side, where genuine prayer is prayed, the heart is changed. It softens to such an extent that it's launched to a deeper, more faith-filled prayer. It's this sort of a vicious cycle, right? You've heard that phrase, you know, it's a, this happens, so this happens, then it returns to this, except it's not really vicious at all, right? It's not life-killing, it's life-giving. So I try to think of a way to describe this, not a vicious cycle, but a vivacious cycle, all right? That's the best I could come up with. Vivacious literally means lively, life-giving. Look, come on, that's alliteration. It's the best I can do. All right, so vivacious cycle of prayer. Because prayer leads to love, and love leads back to prayer. It's a beautiful thing. So let's look at how Paul encapsulates this in his letter to the church at Philippi. That's how he kind of opens his letter, starting in verse 3. I thank God in all my remembrance of you. All right, so we're going to stop there. That was quick capture an otherwise passing thought. Now, according to reports published by the United States National Scientific Foundations, our brains produce 12 to 50,000 thoughts per day. All right, but somewhere between 12 and 50,000, I don't know what, it, I think what accounts for the difference is if you own an Xbox <laughs> and the amount of Doritos you eat per day. All right, I just got to throw that out. I think sometimes those are combined, by the way, Xbox playing Doritos. But in all seriousness, of these thoughts, between 10 and 25% of those thoughts are directly about another person or other persons. Somewhere between 10, you know, depending on extroverted, introverted, those sorts of things. So at minimum, if you have a functioning brain, all right, which I am going to go ahead and compliment you by saying, yes, you do. I know you guys. You have a functioning brain. At minimum, you have 1,200 thoughts a day about another person. 
So I've heard thoughts that pass through your mind about another person where 12,000 thoughts where another person's considered, another person's called to mind, or is remembered, as Paul puts it here. Paul's occasion for praying for the dear persons in Philippi is just plainly remembering them. It's a thought. They are a thought that enters his mind. But what he does with his thoughts of another is categorically different than what most people do. Right? Most of us, when we think of another person, we smile. You know, we just sort of let the thought pass through our heads. Or in some extreme cases, we imagine their death. All right? Uh, if you're really angry at someone. <laughs> That's pretty twisted, isn't it? But we don't actually do anything about these thoughts, which in the case of the last thing I mentioned is probably pretty good. But we let the pa- thoughts usually pass through our head. But what Paul does is he captures those thoughts and then he prays them. And in doing so, we see that prayer is actually very practical. Very practical. It doesn't start for Paul with a prayer list, you know, or a prayer calendar, or a list of needs from an email chain that go out. All those are great, all great things, great disciplines. He just begins with a thought. He thinks, and then he thanks. So now as he begins to pray, notice that prayer of thanksgiving leads to love. Look at this. But I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You, you hear this, right? It's pretty obvious. The transition from prayer to love is pretty clear, right? The thanksgiving that wells up for others and thanking God for particular things about them leads to love. But if we were to move on here to the next verses, we miss an important middle step between genuine prayer and genuine love. And it comes in these verses here. He talks about making this prayer with joy, your partnership in the gospel for the first day until now. And then he says something interesting. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ returns. Through prayer, Paul expresses confidence in change without control. Confidence in change in someone's life without the control. Now think about it. Any partnership, and that's what he's talking about here. It could be a friend. It could be in a marriage. It could be a business partner. Any partnership, what's the one thing we think will move people along to change? Because we want people to change, right? In any serious partnership, you want somebody to change. What's the one thing we can do to move it along? Control. Right? I just need to say something. I need to take the reins here. All right, I need, to, I need to say something to you. Maybe if, I, maybe if I just send them this email. Control. And Paul in verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Confident. What Paul does, because he also wants people to change in this partnership, but what he does On their behalf, he prays to someone who loves them infinitely more and can do infinitely more. Because Jesus set the standard of love through the cross. 
and he set the standard of doability through the resurrection. So what you're doing is you're praying someone towards a cross. Lord, direct them towards the cross. Help them see your love and compassion in the cross. And then help them realize and trust and receive the power of your resurrection. Jesus gave us the model, the standard. We just have to pray it for other people. Does that make sense? We want to control, but there is one who loves and knows them and wants to do something in them infinitely more than we could. It takes away that selfishness, that control, and it takes it to the cross, to Christ. Because isn't loving someone, releasing them for their own good? Right? You know that phrase that if you love something, set it free. Right? <laughs> if it returns to you, it always loves you. If it doesn't return to you, sorry. It doesn't belong to you and it never liked you. I think that's how it gets. All right. So you get the point. What an amazing step Paul introduces in praying in such a way that it changes other people's lives and it changes his own. So then we see prayer leads to love. Love then leads to prayer. Look with me in verses 11 or 7 through 11. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer, watch each of the move from love to prayer, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. When you seek him who is love on others' behalf, when you seek him who is love for others, your love begins to resemble his love. It's inevitable. It will happen. So how do you know then that your prayer has made a difference? How do you know your prayer has made a difference? There's a permanency to your love. There's a familiarity to your love. There's a limitlessness to your love. But first, there's a truthiness to your love. I made up two words. Actually, I stole that word. Truthiness to your love. Look at me in verse 7. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. Well, what makes it right? We're going to see here in a moment. Then he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to say, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so you may be able to prove what is excellent. See, so Paul prays these things for others, but as he prays them for others, as he does, God is forging those same qualities, those same characteristics of love in him. Now, love, in, in one way, is nothing more than losing yourself in something or someone. All right? We all agree on that. Losing yourself. Going outside of yourself with your feelings, emotions, affections, your mind, into something or someone else. So we lose ourselves in movies and books. We lose ourselves in romantic relationships. We lose ourselves in what we wish our lives would be, in relationships we wish we could have. Right? In our thought life. Well, these things are, can, or can be good, don't you find that at the end of a good movie or a good book, full of laughter and meaning, that when you walk away, when you go down the aisle after a movie like that, you kind of have a funny feeling, right? Like, it's done. You've just done laughing. Or you've just been finished crying or whatever it might be. There's just tears streaming down your face, and then it's over. 
All right, well, what do I feel, think, talk about now? Have you ever had that kind of funny feeling? Like that's over, you've lost yourself in something, then it's done. You lose yourself in a relationship, and a time comes when the feeling that you once got from that relationship no longer does it for you anymore. Huh, what do I do now? Or those vain fantasies or imaginations of our potential lives end with the person from integration calling next, A-105. Please come to the counter. And it ends, and you're done. And that fantasizing, that thought is over. What all of these sometimes good but inferior objects of love share in common is an abrupt, empty aftertaste. I actually really like this phrase. I'm not trying to brag. I really love this. Abrupt, and it, 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 when it does end, man, it hurts. It ends quick. And you just realize, man, that was empty. I mean, even though I was loved it, God doesn't say, oh, I, you can't watch this show. It's not that, but you, you immerse yourself. It's over and it's empty and it leaves an aftertaste, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. God's love is knowledgeable and discerning and can approve what is most excellent. Namely, himself and the things which he approves, the things of God. There's something about, there's just something about loving what is true and what is lasting. It is totally different, friends. It doesn't leave you with an abrupt, empty aftertaste because it's what or who you were created to love. And so it, it feels right because you are in God's will, loving what he loves. And also it never ends, but only expands. When you find that you love what is true, it opens up thousands of possibilities to what your life might look like, to plumb deeper into the riches and the knowledge of God. There's a truthiness to your love. There's also a permanency to your love. What does Paul say here in verse 7? He says, I hold you in my heart. Remember, we talked about not being just another passing thought. Paul prays for people, and thus they become a fixture in his heart. They become solidified in his heart. So during brief but fierce disagreements, you don't leave. During a battle which involves radically different points of view, you don't threaten. When it seems most convenient, even even sensible, the world would tell you to bail, you find a way to encourage. Why? Because there's a permanency that's developing to your love. It goes beyond this temporary moment of anger, frustration, sadness, even emptiness. Your love is no longer rooted in feelings, memories, even longevity, but in Jesus Christ. The mere confession of whom is the rock upon which he builds his church. There's a familiarity, familiarity to your love. He starts to say in verse 7, You're partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and my defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And you notice that, so they know about each other. They know about his imprisonment and what's going on. He goes on to say, For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That affection for one another, that familiarity. He also mentions the word here, gospel. Eugelion in the Greek. This word, the gospel, which appears a couple times just in this passage, It appears without any kind of explanation or definition more times in Philippians than any other New Testament letter. 
In other words, in other words Paul just mentions the word without any explanations more times in Philippians. So why should we give a hoot about that? Why does that matter? So Paul was just, all right, he was tired of explaining the gospel, what it means, why it matters. It matters because it clearly signifies that the gospel, its contents, its message, its meaning were so well known between the author of this letter and his recipients that it became where no further explanation was required. Right, this concept of the gospel, which was new, radical, controversial for most, it wasn't so much an inside joke, but like an inside term of affection between two people, between Paul and this church. He just, he knew they knew the gospel, so he didn't offer lots of explanations like he does everywhere else. This happens when you care so sincerely about a person that you ask them questions. You know their quirks, and they know yours. You know their upbringing. You know how afternoon showers reminds them of summers spent with their dad. You know the three reasons why, why next year Chelsea ought to get rid of its back line. Right? You know what makes them laugh. You know, most of all, what they believe and whom they trust. Because there's that affection, there's that familiarity. And that's real love. Fourthly, how do you know your prayer is answered? Because you're changed and there's a limitlessness to your love. He says in verse 9, I pray that your love may abound more and more. This word translated more and more literally means to overflow, be more than enough, be extremely rich. It's a word that Paul uses 26 times in his letters. Paul often uses this, this word to challenge people to the next level. Okay, you've loved. That's awesome. I'm going to pray that love now overflows, that it goes deeper, wider, greater, as he talks about in Ephesians 3, so that it goes to more ways. There are more situations, more and different kinds of people affected by this love. Scientists have uh, identified a specific love-inducing, trust-building chemical called oxytocin. Psychologists refer to it as the hormone of love, even though men have often tried to identify their secret weapon as Old Spice. You know? That'll work. <laughs> Doesn't really. All right, but, but this oxytocin, when present in our brain, it causes us to want to reach out to people to help and to bond with them. However, as the New York Times article in 2011, January 2011, explains, that apparently this love hormone has its limits. Recent research suggests that human oxytocin produces a brand of love that extends to people in our in-group. In other words, in sinful human beings, oxytocin unleashes a narrow ethnocentric kind of love. Socioeconomic specific kind of love. So in recent studies from the Netherlands, a number of students were given doses of oxytocin and then presented with hypothetical dilemmas. In one scenario, Dutch students were asked whether to help a person on an overloaded lifeboat, thereby drowning the five already there. In another scenario, the Dutch students were asked whether to save five people in the path of a train by throwing a bystander onto the tracks. The five people who might be rescued were nameless, but the person who might be sacrificed was given either a foreign name or a Dutch name. 
What they found in these studies is that students who ingested oxytocin prior to test were more likely to favor their own kind and sacrifice ethnic outsiders. But the study concludes that oxytocin only increases our love and loyalty to people in our in-group, homogeneous people. Conversely, it makes us more likely to exclude those who aren't in that group. The point is this. Clearly, friends, in our fallen state, human love doesn't stretch that far. There is a limit. But you know your prayers are making a difference when you watch your love be transformed to richly overflow to places and to people it rarely reached before. Where it never or rarely went before. That is God's love. You know it. When you're talking to someone and you admit to yourself, you know what? I would not have gone across the street to talk to that person. If I'm really honest, you start to see it. It's no longer human love, but divine. So with this list, characteristics of love, you can't look at this list and work down it until you perfect it. That's not how it works. But what Paul does give us here is a big picture of how we might get there. It all begins with capturing an otherwise passing thought about someone. Then you thank God for them, specific things about them, and their partnership with you, specifically the partnership in the gospel, whatever that partnership may look like, just giving thanks to God for them. And lift them up to the one who infinitely loves and has the power to transform them, to change them. And God will produce this kind of love in you, which then can be exponentially increased through more prayer. Right? Because this is a pretty radical prayer then at the end. It unleashes a serious, faith-filled, life-transforming prayer in Paul. And that's the vivacious cycle of prayer and love. You know, friends, we, we look out, often cynically, trying to understand if how prayer is making a difference and neglect to realize that God's first intent is that prayer makes a difference in us. Let's pray. Now, normally at this time, just I pray a prayer and we close and we're going to do something different this morning. First, take that name of the person you wrote down earlier. All right, just pray with me. First, thank God for the person whose name you wrote down. Just take a, take a few seconds to thank the Lord specifically for things about them, for their partnership. If it is a partnership of some kind, now pray that person towards Jesus and the cross. Release them towards Jesus. If, if you're having a struggle, you want them to change badly, and you want to control the relationship and its terms, release that person towards the cross and towards the resurrection of Christ and its power. And grow in confidence that God is completing the work he began. Take a few seconds to do that.
Now, do you sense your love escalating for that person? I mean, this is a small moment, but do you sense that? If so, let that escalated love escalate our prayer the way Paul does. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.